So I'm going to be sharing with you um, a sermon that I'd prepared when I spoke at Hosanna in December. Um, John had asked me just this past Thursday if I would be willing to, to share this message with you, so um, I'm excited to do so. So I'll ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke 10, <clears throat> uh, starting in verse 25. It's a very, very familiar passage, um, but I'm hoping to maybe shed some, um, some more light into what Jesus is trying to tell us here. And so again, Luke 10, 25, all the way to 37. So I'll ask you to stand as we read. <clears throat> and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for bringing us here today. Um, we thank you for this message that you've put on my heart. Um, and I just pray that it would speak to all of us the way it has spoken to me and that our hearts would really receive um, what you intended in this passage um, to show us as your children and as your followers, Lord, the love that um, you, you expect from us. And so, Father, I pray that... Um, you know, as we, as we sit here and, and discuss this passage, um, that, Lord, you would just continue to transform our hearts as you've, you've continued that good work in all of us, um, as you started that good work in all of us. And so, Lord, I pray that just for this brief time together, you would bless us with your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay, so by a show of hands, who has heard this parable before? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> um, it's probably one of the, if not the most famous of Jesus' parables. Um, there are Western secular laws that are named after this parable. They all have to do with helping those in need. But what if I told you that this parable is much more than what meets the eye? What if I told you this parable is a bit more than just helping someone? We all know that this parable is about loving our neighbor, whomever that may be. 
Um, but if we took a deeper look into the characters involved in the context of the situation at hand, we will see this parable is more about confrontation. Jesus is confronting the listeners and the Jewish lawyer who poses the question, who is my neighbor? Because he knows what's really at the heart of this man's question. Now, before we go there, it's very important to provide some historical context in order to truly understand the parable that Jesus is telling. So I want to bring our attention to Samaria. Samaria was once upon a time, it belonged to the northern kingdom of Israel from the time of King Solomon until it was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And when the Assyrian king conquered it, he deported most of the Israelites living there and sent them into exile. There were a few who had escaped the exile and remained in the land, and those who did were forced to live alongside other refugees from other conquered nations of the Assyrians. And these people who lived amongst the, 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 um, the Israelites who stayed behind were pagan, and they were idol-worshiping Gentiles, unclean and unfamiliar with the God of Israel. And so what ended up happening was the remaining Israelites ended up intermarrying with these foreigners, and the offspring of these mixed people were the Samaritans. So once the Jews were freed from exile and they returned to their land, they come face to face with this new race of people. And they hate them. Not only were their ancestors deserters and sellouts, they had married Gentiles and now worshipped pagan gods. And you can read more about this in 2 Kings uh, uh, chapter 17. So this information, for obvious reasons, plays a vital role in the parable itself. Right? Jesus' audience would have known this. The lawyer, who is actually a scribe and a supposed expert in the law of God, would have definitely known this fact. And that's why Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. Right? And this goes alongside all of the other, um, what we call kingdom economics that we find in the Bible. You know, the, the Mary and, and Jesus being born into poverty, uh, the shepherds heralding the good news, the women being the first to see the open tomb and, and, um, and spread the news of the resurrected Lord. So I want to go back to verse 29. Before we go into the parable itself, I want to look a bit deeper at the character of the man asking the question. If you notice while I was reading, I highlighted a certain point. So, Because this is going to give us insight as to what he truly meant by the question at the end of the verse. We see that he is looking to justify himself. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that he's self-righteous. And just like any of the other religious elite at this time, they place themselves on a pedestal, right, way above anyone else. Especially those who were considered wicked or sinners, such as prostitutes, such as tax collectors, and obviously, in this case, a Samaritan who would fall into this group. The prevailing opinion among scribes and Pharisees was that one's neighbors were the righteous alone. Neighbors were those who looked, talked, and acted like him. Those who were the enemies of God, those mentioned before, were to be hated and despised, at least according to these religious elite. You can even see in the lawyer's hatred in his answer when Jesus asks him who his neighbor was. How does he respond? The lawyer says the one who showed compassion or in the, the one who showed mercy towards him. He can't even utter the word Samaritan. That's how much he despised him. So when he asks the question to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? He's essentially asking him, 
Who do I not have to love? He's looking for the lowest bar in keeping the law. And isn't that so relatable, right? Aren't we a little guilty of trying to do the exact same thing, trying to justify ourselves and our sin by trying to obey by the lowest standard possible? But obviously Jesus, as he always does, shatters those misconceptions of the Jewish leaders at the time and answers the question not by showing who a neighbor is, but rather describing what a neighbor is to be. Followers of Jesus are supposed to look different. Disciples of Jesus are supposed to be marked and defined by love. And even this love is meant to look different. Jesus calls his disciples to love in a way that does not look normal. He tells us to love our enemies. And before I had mentioned that the scribes and Pharisees hated certain people, namely the blatant sinners, this is because they hated evil and loved righteousness, which is, which is a, a very good thing. But the same way that godly love looks different, godly hatred also looks different. The Pharisees and the scribes actually hated these people, despised them, detested them. But as I said before, true godly hatred for, of something or someone looks different than despisement. As John MacArthur would put it, it is marked by a broken-hearted grieving over the condition of the sinner. It's not that we hate the person, it's about hating the sin. That's what godly hatred is. But the Pharisees and, and, the, and the, the religious elite at the time, they actually despised the person. So, as I was saying, the Pharisees and the scribes didn't love nor hate the, in this way. They took extreme pride in treating the wicked with hostility because it put the spotlight on them and showed this, the, the, the moral chasm that existed between the two of them. So in reality, they were actually negating the second commandment of loving thy neighbor. This is why Jesus answers this lawyer with this parable. He demolishes the excuse for hating one's enemies by making an enemy the hero in this story. So I want to dedicate the rest of our time together to show how our love to the world around us is to look different as disciples of Jesus. Jesus outlines just how we are to let his love shine through us through the lessons he teaches in this parable. A couple of these pointers were taken from one of my favorite pastors, Jamin Roller, in his sermon, Neighbor to All. So the first way Jesus calls us to love our neighbor is to place people over priority. The road that goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for robbers hanging out in the caves nearby. It was also super dangerous. It was rocky, windy, um, and like I said, there was always that ever-present dangers of someone lurking in the caves in order to rob those um, who were traveling. And so when you traveled this road, you were in this heightened state of fear because of its many dangers. The priest and the Levite would have had this in their minds. Then they were on their way home from the temple and they were going straight there, hoping nothing would get in their way. Notice that the passage says that they were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, not the other way around, right? It's the same road. You could go either way, but the, the highlighted point is from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is important because this means that both the priest and the Levite had just left the temple and were now ceremonially and spiritually clean. So they knew that if they stopped this man, if, sorry, if they stopped to help this man, this would disrupt, disrupt their trip and their agenda because if he was dead and they came close to him, that would make them unclean. And this is what 
So essentially, they elevated, sorry, the task over the person. And this is what task-oriented people tend to do. They push others to the side. We see it at homes. We see it in the workplace, right? Some people look at others and calculate how they can help them move forward in their task. They tend to look at people and say, how do you benefit me? How can you be useful to me? Oh, you can't? Well, then I have no time for you. And Jesus calls us to be different, right? The way we are to be a neighbor to the world around us is to place people above even our own priorities. If someone is in need, you help them, regardless of what you've planned. And just like every other lesson that God teaches us, it's not like he didn't set the example beforehand. God saw and foreknew our helpless state. And so what does he do? He doesn't just walk on by. He sends his son to die in our place for the sins that we committed. Not because he had to, but because he loves us. And he knew the only way to give us right standing before him was to do exactly that. He had this rescue plan in mind way before the foundations of the earth were laid, knowing full well that we would rebel against him. We were created to glorify him, yet instead we betray him. And did this stop him? No. Instead, he made a way and prioritized us even though we didn't deserve it. People over priority. The second way we're called to love and to be a neighbor is to place our likeness before our differences. Verse 30 tells us that the robbers left the man. Notice, Jesus doesn't say who the man is nor where he's from. And again, this is a very, very important point. He says that they left the man stripped, beaten, and half dead or unconscious. Now again, all of these are extremely important. Why? Because the man had no labels, right? The priest and the Levite would not be able to distinguish him. One, he stripped. So you can't tell what class of person this man is because he's not wearing any clothes. Beaten. His face would have been bloodied and bruised, right? Which means you wouldn't have been able to tell his race. And last, he's unconscious. So whatever speech, he, however he spoke with whatever type of um, accent, you would not have been able to distinguish it. So therefore, there's no way to tell where this man is from. Jesus knows how the sinful mind works. We're all guilty of this. We tend to look for differences in order to justify our views. And so the Samaritans saw what the priest and the Levite chose not to see, that he was human. And that he, as being a human being, is made in the image of God. And that should have been enough. God always sees his image, even when we don't. So that is what the priest and the Levite failed to see in the man, and this is exactly what the lawyer would have failed to see in the Samaritan. This is nothing new. And this is also what one of God's prophets in the Old Testament failed to see in the Ninevites. And even after Jonah had been swallowed by the fish and warned the Ninevites of their coming judgment, he still suffered from the exact same prejudices of the heart. Have you ever read Jonah chapter 4? What a sad ending to a beautiful story. Right? And what a drastic difference in reaction to when sinners repent and come to salvation between Jonah and what Jesus tells us in Luke 15.10. In Luke 15.10, Jesus says, There is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Jesus tells us that heaven rejoices, and there's essentially celebrations over one sinner. That's an incredible image. But how does Jonah react? Let's start at Jonah 3.10 and read until 4.3. If you can open your Bibles to Jonah 3.10 and go into 4.3. So it starts in Jonah 3.10. It says, when God saw their deeds, this is after Jonah had had, uh, preached to the Ninevites. When God had saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. And so he did not do it. And look at the headline of what chapter 4 is called, Jonah's displeasure rebuked. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Then he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish, since I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah knew God would show his mercy and compassion, because that's who God is. That's why Jonah fled to Tarshish in the first place. He did not want to see Gentiles, people who were different from him, people who looked different, people who spoke differently, people who acted differently, people who were not Jewish. He did not want to see them receive God's mercy and grace because he couldn't allow himself to realize that they too were made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. He just saw their differences and said, these people do not deserve God's compassion. I like when God's mercy is applied to me and people like me, not to people who I deem unworthy because they're Gentiles. The truth is, we're all unworthy. We're all sinners. We all deserve wrath. But that's what makes the cross so beautiful and such a true miracle. Jesus took our place. He bore the wrath of God so that those who believe don't have to. But Jonah and the lawyer failed to see and understand and focus on the differences instead of the likenesses. Do you know that all the pagan temples, um, sorry, all the temples in the pagan nations at this time had statues or images pertaining to the god of the temple that, that it belonged to, right? And so people who, attend, who, who would step into these temples, they would never deface or destroy an image of the God in these temples because the thought was the way you treat the image is the way you treat the God. The temple in Jerusalem did not have a statue. It did not bear an image of our God. Why? Because we bear his image. And as his most precious creation, we were created in his image. His temple doesn't need one because he's given us his image. And not just Italians, right? Israelites and everyone as well, right? The homeless guy downtown, the guy who sells you gum on the corner store, the fetus in in the mother's womb, right? We are all image bearers, all of us. Likeness over difference. That's what the Samaritan saw. And lastly, he placed others over self. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and he came to him He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He 
put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay you. The love he shows this broken and bruised man is extreme. Most of the story, if you notice, of the Samaritan is dedicated to his actions. The Samaritan places this man's problems over any of his own priorities and any of the problems of his own. He pays up front, the man stays, out of his own pocket. And then he assures that if he stays any longer, he's going to come back and settle the debt. Why? Because at this time, the way debts were settled was if you didn't pay, you were forced into slavery. The Samaritan knows this, and obviously Jesus telling the story knows this. So he goes above and beyond to ensure that even after the man recovers, nothing more will happen to him. Martin Luther King has a famous quote concerning a message he shared on the Good Samaritan. He says, the first two men ask themselves, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan rather asks himself, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And didn't Jesus do the same? You want to talk about a good Samaritan? How about an immeasurably good God? He too made my problem his problem. He bore my sin and shame. He carried my cross. He died my death. He took my place. And that is true love. And the Samaritan loves with a similar heart. He goes beyond just saving him. He cares for him. He pays a price to guarantee him life. And doesn't this sound familiar? Jesus shows us how to be a neighbor and how to love the world around us, not by only giving us the example of the Samaritan, but by he himself being the ultimate example of love and sacrifice. And just like the Samaritan, Jesus sees us and he is empathetic and loving to our situation, even when he never had to be. And just like the man, we are broken and in need of a savior. And what an amazing one we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I, as I read through that sermon um, and as I, I prepared it uh, a few months back, I remember looking at those pointers and, and, and sometimes seeing myself in them. And, and I pray, Lord, that um, if anyone here listening felt the same and, and, and could really see themselves in, in either the priest or the Levite in, in placing priority over people or differences over likeness, um, God, I pray that we would repent from that and, and that, Lord, again, you would just continue to mold and shape our hearts into the followers and disciples that you want us to be. Lord, I pray that, um, you know, as we reflect on this and maybe as we go back and read this, this portion of Scripture tonight, um, that, God, you would continuously shape our hearts um, to who you want us to be in you. And God, again, you know, you give the example of the Good Samaritan and, and a, um, a parable that so many people know, even people who don't believe in you. Um, but I hope that the opportunity comes that if this word or this, this phrase ever does come up somewhere, um, that we can give the true explanation of who the good, the only good one is and how on every point that was brought up, um, you set the example beforehand. Lord, you took our place. You came down from your heavenly throne 
to humble yourself and to pay the price for our sins. And so, Lord, um, again, you know, that line that I said, just we talk about a good Samaritan, but what about an immeasurably good God? And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for setting the example. And, Lord, just help us be living examples of, of what you've called us to be. I pray this in, in this upcoming week, and I pray this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.